on ABC Radio. You are with Rod Quinn. This is the Overnights Program. And, well, it's time to head to the United States. Celeste Katz is our guest in Boston, Massachusetts. And, uh, Celeste, a very good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. How are things over there? Because, you know... Just talking about COVID-19, for example, they talk about maybe a, a, spy, a second spike or whatever, or a second wave, but it seems as though that first wave never went away and it's just that people got bored or got frustrated with staying at home or following the, the rules uh, that the government, or not necessarily the government, but uh, Dr Fauci sort of said they should follow and then they just ignored that and because of that, it's just gone crazy again. There's a couple of things going on. I think that you're right that some people did get sort of frustrated or angry about wearing masks, staying indoors, not seeing their families and their friends or going to stores or eating out and so on. And that has probably contributed a great deal to this spread. Um, Also, there's more testing going on. We have greater testing capacity in the United States. And so we are finding out more uh, about how many people are actually infected, whether or not they are are showing symptoms, whether or not they are hospitalized. So that's been a big deal as well. Uh, And also, finally, just uh, after being super, super careful in a lot of places like here in Boston, we are starting to reopen open the United States, starting to reopen the economy, offices, shops, and so on, and people are interacting again. So it's probably not all that surprising that we are seeing a new surge of cases. So the peak number of cases in the U.S. was earlier in the year was 36,400. It was in April, but you've just had 34,700. So it's quite possible maybe tomorrow or the day after you are going to reach a new peak How much of it do you think is also because Americans don't like to be told, by the government in particular, what to do? Now, Australians like to see themselves as anti-authority, but in fact, I don't think we are. I think we pretty much meekly follow what the government tells us. But in America, it's a real sort of thing, yeah, you can't tell me what to do. How much of it do you think is because of that? That's definitely a really big part of the American ethos, the American spirit. You know, don't tell me what to do. Don't tread on me, so to speak. Um, And a lot of people don't want to be told whether they should have to wear a mask or whether they should have to stand six feet away from another person or where they can go or when they can uh, be expected to stay home under a curfew. Obviously, there's been a lot of protesting going on in the United States as well over issues of social justice, racial justice, police brutality. That's brought a lot of people together. Some people are complying with guidelines for staying away from other people and covering their faces. Some people are not. Um, The president has been uh, starting his campaign season. He had a big, big rally, uh, not as big as he thought, but he did have a large indoor rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's made uh, other stops. And uh, all of those things bring people together and those kinds of congregation activities are what spreads the virus yeah so that's what's happened with the president also the fact that you need leadership in something like this and with so many not only the president but governors of states pretty much ignoring what their doctors are telling them or what the experts are telling them that's not helping either is it i mean that's that's setting a terrible example i mean whether you just don't want to wear a mask that's one thing 
it's just not setting the best example. And you can hardly blame people to think, say, to point at the president or any other governors and say, well, you're not doing it. Why should I? Setting uh, an example is a very big deal. The president has been quite adamant about not appearing in public or being photographed wearing a mask. Uh, and that does set a tone. The vice president has been uh, somewhat more uh, involved in taking those kinds of precautions. But you know, in the, the 50 states, we have a real patchwork of, of governors, of political views, of who's listening to who. And you have uh, some places that have become hotspots uh, for various reasons. They have bigger cities with more density. Um, they have not enforced regulations like face coverings and social distancing. And people travel a lot uh, between states. We have air travel. We have people who commute to other states, even across states borders for work and so on. Um, you have essential workers who have to be out there, uh, whether or not they're encouraging other people to stay home. And again, all of those things are modes of transmission. So um, different states that may not have had a problem earlier are now finding that their numbers are ticking up and uh, testing is also revealing uh, more of what's really going on. So what are they going to do? I mean, is this just a matter that people think, oh, well, we'll wait for a vaccine, and if I get, you know, the disease before then, well, that's just too bad? Because I I, I just can't believe that people are allowing this to happen. If I, I, It certainly wouldn't happen in Australia, and it means that no one's going to be able to visit the United States, for example. People from the US can't go elsewhere in the world. If there's no vaccine by, you know, this time next year, I mean, the deaths are going to be horrendous. They're going to get up to about half a million, surely. Yeah, I mean, the deaths are, and everyone says this as a sort of a, a truism uh, or, uh, you know, a, just a fact of life. But I mean, it really is, you know, even one death is too many. And the fact that we've had um, thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths nationwide and even here in Boston, where I'm uh, living and speaking to you from, is a very frightening thing. And what you're seeing now is that some states that had moved to uh, open up or had not uh, fully shut down the way other places had, are, are now having to slam on the brakes. Places like Texas and Florida that are seeing a real surge in cases. They were saying, oh, well, you know, the, the worst has passed us by. We have to go back to living our lives. And everyone understands the economic concerns. People have to be able to go to work. A one-time stimulus check is not going to cut it if you have a family to feed and rent or a mortgage to pay. Everyone gets that. But none of those things matter if you or someone that you love gets sick and even dies. You know, the people will want a, that uh, wall to be built to keep Americans out of Mexico. You know, that's that's the thing. And Mexican, uh, Mexico, I'm sure, doesn't want Americans coming in at the moment. At the start of the pandemic, you know, I think the president said somewhere maybe 150 to 250,000 people would die. After a while, it looked like it was going to go nowhere near that. But you're climbing towards 200,000 deaths. At the moment, I don't think there'll be any difficulty passing 250,000, certainly by the end of the year, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's already multiple times the number of 
you know, other major events in, in U.S. history, the number of people who got killed in the Vietnam War, for example. If you think about that just as sort of a, a data point, it's it really is terrifying. And the idea that the good news is that we might only have 100,000 or 200,000 people die in this pandemic is, is really quite shocking. When you talk about it sort of clinically, it, it's just a number, but every one of those you know, every every digit in that in that equation is a, a human life that is no longer with us. So in Boston, how are they handling it there? Uh, I mean, is it mandatory to wear masks? Um, what about restaurants and things like that, and and people uh, places where people gather publicly? Uh, what's happening? Yeah, we still have the rule that you have to wear a face covering. There's social distancing. Now, if you walk around, uh, say, and uh, you go to the bank or you go to the pharmacy or something like that, the floors are marked uh, at the grocery store as well, things like that. Uh, how far apart you should stand from other people. There's not a strict curfew in the sense that uh, police are not sort of canvassing the streets, keeping people off the off the sidewalks or, or herding them back into their homes after nine o'clock at night. But uh, there is definitely still a note of caution being sounded. At the same time, certain things are opening up. We are seeing restaurants now having limited service, uh, outdoor seating, people staying distant, people having to stay in their seats. You can't walk around. But we are talking about more businesses opening up in a, on a according to a phased plan uh, looking forward to the fall with what's going to happen with schools and of course all these plans are dependent upon not seeing another dramatic surge even if we don't have the vaccine but if there's a way to control this through social distancing through testing then we can sort of get back to normal life but life will never really be quite the same and I think most people are are accepting of that so just explain about the North End. What kind of bo part of Boston is that? Well, tell us about it and what's going on on the North End. I think you and I have actually talked yes, about the uh, the, nor the North End. It's a it's a, a beautiful neighborhood, uh, lots of restaurants and shops and so on. It's a a real gathering place. You know, there's there's nightlife. There's um, you know plenty to walk around and see and do and have a cappuccino or have uh, a great dinner or a lunch. And so they're trying to get back into business. This is uh, an area of the city that was very hard hit because everything has been closed for so long. So now they're trying to sort of open up these restaurants and cafes, uh, a lot of it with outdoor seating, because generally um, being outdoors is better than being indoors in a you know closed uh, environment with recirculated air, especially when it's hot out. Um, but that's coming with uh, with problems of its own. So you got people wandering around, you know, making sure that people are wearing their masks or not moving from table to table. Look, it's a very historic part of the town. There's, uh, you know, cobblestone streets. There's Paul Revere's house. There's all sorts of stuff. It is where all the um, tourists go uh, in Boston. And, yeah, again, you know, like if, if business goes downhill there, then the rest of Boston follows, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, Boston has certain things that it really relies on to keep its economy moving. One is uh, the universities. And as we've discussed in the past, there's some serious questions about yeah. how and when universities are going to be able to welcome back students. Um, there's a big tech sector. But, uh, you know, again, that's um, that raises a lot of questions about people working in in close quarters and office spaces and how to do that safely. And then there's the tourism business, restaurants sightseeing shopping uh, it's a you know sort of like the cradle of American democracy and so on and everything that goes along with it and that part of the economy has been very hard hit but now that people are coming back once you have people sort of congregating outdoors there's still people who live in that neighborhood so if there's loud music and there's smoking and there's dogs and there's partying and screaming and yelling and the traffic patterns are changed you know the people who live there full-time who are yes. not the tourists uh, have something to say about that. What do you make of people who still say it's a hoax? The whole COVID-19 thing is a hoax. My question on that is, like, to what purpose? Why would someone want to totally destroy the economy of the world uh, for no benefit whatsoever? What about, and, and, you know, tell that to someone whose, you know, family member has died of it as well. Uh, you know, what do you make of people who still think it's a hoax? I think that it's really hard to get a PhD in microbiology from Twitter or Facebook. Hmm. I think that I've people tried. who are, are, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've been struggling with it myself. I just don't think it works that way. And I think that people get bits and pieces of information, sometimes from very highly politically motivated sources, partisan sources, uh, people who just don't know what the heck they're talking about. And they cobble it together into one of these conspiracy theories that, um, you know, this was a virus that was created in a lab. It was it was foisted upon Americans to make President Trump look bad and to destroy the uh, the strength of the economy so that he would lose the election. Or that wearing a mask actually uh, makes you more likely to get sick. Or that you know if you rub yourself with garlic and say the alphabet backwards 25 times, you can't get the virus and just nonsense. And I think that people who are propagating that, some of these people, I would say a small percentage, but some of these people may genuinely just be uninformed. And they may say, well, you know, I read some sort of home remedy or old wives tale or something like that, that if you do this, that and the other, you can't get sick. And then there's some people who have uh, a political interest or a social interest in some way of of making this somebody else's fault. And finally, then we go back to the people that you were talking about kind of at the beginning of the conversation mm -hmm. where there are just Americans who don't want to be told what to do. And they're sick and tired of not going to work and getting paid. They are collecting unemployment or they can't collect unemployment. They want their kids to go to school because homeschooling <laughs> is not fun. And uh, generally, they want to be left alone. And being left alone does not include wearing a mask, staying home from the beach and uh, standing six feet away from uh, uh, your friends and uh, associates. And that's unfortunate. What do I make of those people who are out there saying that this isn't happening? I can assure you from the people that I know who have lost loved ones uh, in horrible circumstances, it is happening. Because there would be some leaders that don't believe in it who, you know, would be coming out and saying that and there'd be nobody getting sick in their countries. We see what happens in countries like Brazil where 
the uh, the president doesn't believe in it, and yet there are you know tens of thousands of people getting sick in Brazil. Uh, the president, though, he's off to his golf course for the weekend, um, or he will be going there. I think he won't be. Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of rules in New Jersey, which is where his golf course is, and he won't be following them. Yeah, that's the thing. Is as part of an attempt to control uh, a second surge or a new surge. Certain states, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, are um, setting new quarantine uh, new quarantine rules, talking about people who are traveling into the state, uh, if they're coming from hotspots or, you know, to, uh, to quarantine themselves, to stay away from other people for, for 14 days to avoid spreading the virus around. But President Trump, as you well know, has a number of properties that he owns and that he visits as opposed to just the sort of traditional Camp David uh, presidential retreat. He has a, um, a golf club and resort in Bedminster, New Jersey. He has Mar-a-Lago in South Florida and so on. And so the uh, the reports have been that when he goes to New Jersey um, for a weekend getaway, he will not be, um, you know, wearing a mask or observing this quarantine. And that's a concern, uh, as you said, because it does set a tone. He is uh, the leader of the country. He sets an example. But there are already people in his entourage who are getting sick. Members of the Secret Service have tested positive and had to go into quarantine. People who were involved in the planning of his event in Tulsa uh, have tested positive for the virus. And, you know, it's a real concern, um, not only because those individuals will will get sick and, and need medical treatment or uh, hospitalization or worse, but because, uh, you know, people look to the president of the United States, no matter who it is, for guidance and to set an example. And in this case, um, we are looking at a fresh surge and we see a president who is not taking even simple painless precautions uh, to protect himself and others against it. I presume it kind of reminds me, if anything, of John F. Kennedy, who always refused to be photographed wearing a hat because he thought that it would make him look silly. And that's the same, I'm sure, with the president. He doesn't want to be seen wearing a mask because he thinks that the media will make fun of him. And, uh, you know, he, look, he, I'm sure he genuinely feels that, and I'm sure the, the, the press would make fun of him. But surely, you know, surely, if the rule is you've got to wear a mask, especially he's been visiting factories and all sorts of things where you're supposed to wear masks, and he hasn't done that. But nevertheless, uh, Celeste Katz is our guest in Boston the this election, a lot of people, I don't know, who knows? It's only four or five months away. Nobody knows how it's going to go. The Republicans still overwhelmingly support President Trump. Uh, it's very, very close in Ohio, and the general rule of thumb is if you're a Republican, you must win Ohio, otherwise you don't win the White House. In some areas, though, Biden is a long way ahead. What, what What's it looking like? It's very, as you would expect, it is It is very, very much falling along partisan lines. But we have seen some polling recently, including from uh, Quinnipiac University, which is a, a well-known, uh, long-standing poll here uh, in the U.S., saying that it is uh, an, a neck-and-neck contest in Ohio, which is a real battleground state, as you say, uh, imperative typically for a Republican to win that state. Um, we've also seen polling nationally 
nationally, uh, you know, more on a on a wider scale, that has Biden ahead of Trump. And I think uh, Trump is aware of that. He has um, certainly been attacking Biden, calling him Sleepy Joe, and so on. Uh, in reference to what you were saying a moment ago, one of the things he has ridiculed Joe Biden for is wearing a mask. I think that Trump sees that as as sort of a, a weakness or maybe it's, uh, you know, he's following orders or, or he's frightened or something like this. Um, a lot of people at the Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, were not wearing masks. Uh, so uh, right now we're seeing that Biden has been relatively quiet in this contest. And a lot of people are saying, that's the best thing he can do. Joe Biden is not a man who is uh, uh, immune from making gaffes periodically, saying something uh, uh, a little uh, off color or off center, losing his train of thought uh, and so on. But uh, the best thing he can do, according to to uh, some of the prognosticators here, is just let Trump run against himself. Trump can beat Trump if you let him. And uh, the polling right now is showing that uh, all this fairly disastrous stuff that's going on with COVID, with the collapse of the economy, with with lots of other things, frankly, is having an effect on Trump. It is hard to beat an incumbent president, no question about it, but Trump may not be doing himself uh, a lot of favors with, with some of this stuff, and I think the Biden campaign uh, is pretty aware of that. It's funny you say that, you know, it's hard to beat an incumbent because you look back, George Bush, that was the third term of Reagan, uh, Carter was a one-term president, and then Ford, but that was after Watergate. It is very difficult. Uh, you've got to go all the way back to somebody like Herbert Hoover. That was during the Depression as well. It is very, very difficult to beat an incumbent president. But it's falling along the same lines as before, and that is the Democrats are overwhelmingly in favour of Biden, the Republicans overwhelmingly in favour of Trump. Um Black voters are overwhelmingly Biden. White voters are pretty much in favour of Trump. Women like Biden, men like Trump. College degree, overwhelmingly to Biden. Non-college degree, the poorly educated, as um, uh, President Trump said last time and then said, I love the poorly educated. So it's it's falling pretty much the same as it, it did last time. It's just about how wide that margin will be, isn't it, to determine you know, whether Biden wins or not. Yeah, it's going to, you know, every every election is decided by who shows up to vote. And so it's going to be a question of uh, of the ground game of these campaigns, whether uh, voting by mail will change the calculus. Trump is already trying to cast some doubts about the reliability of voting by mail. Which he votes been, by mail uh, himself, as does the vice yes, president, he, as do everyone else in the yeah. White House. They all vote by, by mail. Yes, they do, but and, and and there is there's no evidence that voting by mail is in any way uh, marred by widespread fraud or that elections are rigged and so on. But Trump just likes to sort of lower the bar there and cast some cast shadows on anything that might not go his way. I mean, he said the 2016 election was rigged and he won. So <laughs> yeah, it's not just him. We should a, point out it's most of the Republicans are trying to suppress the vote, and that's not a partisan thing to say that's just a fact um but there's another part of this of course and there's you know during a pandemic how do you have an election that's an incredibly complex issue there are uh, a bunch of different things you can do and uh, for example you can have voting by mail uh, which is uh 
a very important thing. And a lot of people think there should be more of that. Generally, uh, you can have early voting so you don't have people sort of packed into uh, polling stations, standing in super long lines on Election Day. You can have votings, uh, you know, on weekends or on the days preceding Election Day. Uh, that's a, a major step that people can take. You'd have no excuse absentee voting. Some states require you to explain why you cannot vote in person and why you should be able to cast your ballot by mail. You could get rid of that. Uh, so that's uh, those are all things mm -hmm. that can be done uh, right away uh, to you know sort of ease up the pressure on polling locations where people would congregate and to encourage more people to get involved in the process, which ideally you yes. think would be a good thing in a democracy. You'd be interested to see what happens this year, whether or not everything that's happened in the last year and in the, the last four years is going to encourage people to come out and support the president or uh, those who are determined to get rid of him. Just before we go, and this is something we're going to look at in the next few weeks on the program, facial recognition technology. Now, it's absolutely huge in China. They're developing something like this in Australia, but Boston or the city council there has passed a ban unanimously on facial recognition technology. What would it be used for or what was happening there? Basically, the concern was about facial recognition technology being used by law enforcement, by the police, to identify people. And they found that the problem with the technology was that the error rate, the misidentification rate, was much, much higher uh, for people who are not white. And so obviously that raised a whole bunch of uh, civil rights and civil liberties concerns, aside from the fact that people generally don't enjoy being under surveillance, even if, uh, as a practical matter, people uh, in public places are under surveillance uh, most of, if not all of the time. But that specific use of facial recognition technology to, to identify and to track people's movements uh, was found to disproportionately uh, work against people uh, of color. And so uh, the city council has said that that is just not something that uh, that they want to have happening here in Boston, that it's a threat to, to people's basic rights. And, you know, of course, this is a major issue, especially at a time when the United States is, is entirely roiled by what's happened in the wake of the deaths of people like George Floyd and other people who have been in, in uh, confrontations with the police. So what would they be doing? They'd be scanning the streets as people walk down them, looking for people? Is that how it worked? Uh, I, th I mean, I think that there is still uh, surveillance, camera surveillance is still permitted uh, and you can still use uh, facial recognition is still legal for stuff like using your phone. If you have an iPhone that recognizes you as opposed to putting in a code or, or so on. But it's more specific to um, the use of facial recognition in the investigation of of uh, specific crimes. Uh, you know, they're still working out and the mayor's uh, still looking at this. I think there's going to be a lot of details um, that still have to uh, to be worked out and so on. But um, the general idea, I think, is just to, uh, to have a moratorium on this kind of technology if the yeah. science bears out the idea that... Um, that it can be used disproportionately against people who are not white. All righty. Celeste, who knows what will happen in the next two weeks before we speak again, but I'm sure it'll be fascinating. And when it happens, we'll talk about it with you. Thank you very, very much. Always a pleasure.
Thank you, Celeste Katz in Boston on ABC Radio. You with Rod Quinn.